Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. We'll start our episode in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. If you're an engineering business that could benefit from new materials and manufacturing processes, then SAMPI might be the ideal partner for you. SAMPI is the only technical society that provides enhanced educational opportunities, knowledge transfer, and professional engagement in all fields of materials and processes. To find out how SAMPI can provide your business with growth and educational opportunities, visit SAMPI's website at nasampi.org or consider attending one of SAMPI's conferences, such as CAMEX, the largest and most comprehensive composites and advanced materials event for products, solutions, networking, and advanced industry thinking. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in airspace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. On this episode of the Airspace Engineering Podcast, I'm speaking to Manuel Schleifelder, who is an aerospace engineer based in Vienna, Austria, who works on many different projects related to space engineering. Manuel has a background in designing and building experimental rockets with a student space team of the Technical University in Vienna, known as the Hound Project, and I spoke to him after he returned from a trip to the Black Rock Desert, where he and the Vienna space team tested their newest two-stage experimental rocket. Manuel has a very broad background in space engineering, having worked on projects varying from spacecraft design of lunar landers and systems engineering of rocket propulsion systems to his newest research project in materials science. Generally speaking, the hotter any combustion cycle, the more efficient it will be thermodynamically. Furthermore, in a classic rocket engine, the exhaust gases have a speed limit of exactly Mach 1, the speed of sound, at the narrowest portion of the nozzle the so-called choke condition. Since the speed of sound increases with temperature, hotter combustion means the exhaust gases can be expelled from the rocket at greater velocity, resulting in more thrust. While the speed of sound in air at room temperature is typically around 1,200 km per hour, the speed of sound in the hot exhaust gases of a typical rocket engine can be more than five times this value. Even though we would ideally want a rocket engine to run as hot as possible, the temperature is limited by the ability of materials to withstand these extreme temperatures. For this reason, most rocket engines use some form of cooling, typically passing some of the unburned fuel through channels inside the nozzle to keep the material temperature within reasonable bounds. Manuel is currently developing metal matrix composite materials, that is, carbon fibers embedded within a metal matrix, that are strong enough to withstand the extreme temperatures without the additional mass and engineering complexity of a cooling system. 
In this episode, Manuel and I talk about his background in aerospace engineering, the rockets that the Vienna Student Space Team are building, and the advantages and challenges of developing metal matrix composites for rocket engines. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Manuel Schleifelder. So I'm here with Manuel Schleifelder. Manuel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rainer. So I first encountered you on Twitter, where you were posting some very interesting things about a student rocket project that you were working on. And that's basically how I got really interested in some of the work that you've been doing. But before we get into the topic of space engineering, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do in your day job? I founded a company two years ago to be able to provide engineering services uh, in the space and aerospace sector. The story where I got there is basically that I uh, got an engineering degree in automation engineering. After that, I had a strong feeling that this couldn't have been all. So I, while working, I made a master's degree in German philology and philosophy, but in the end, uh, it turned out that engineering is my thing, uh, as it's always been. The story how I got into space uh, systems engineering is that uh, a guy at the Vienna Uni Technological University founded a space team. Basically, he was on an Erasmus semester in France and learned that there is a experimental rocket competition. And so he came back to Vienna and made uh, an announcement that he is looking for people to uh, make an own team in Austria, in Vienna, to take part at the competition in France. And uh, since I was a little kid, I wanted to build rockets, uh, never had the means to do so. Uh, I remember myself being a 10-year-old boy and puzzling how to make a cone-shaped uh, rocket tip. <laughs> and so basically this was uh, my part of a, a dream coming true and I, I asked uh, the guy uh, if, if I can join. And uh, so I joined the team in 2011, I think. And uh, we built the first rockets and uh, took part in the competition in, in France. This was, uh, this is helped by CISPAS. It's a, a joint venture of uh, educational funds and the, the, the German, uh, the, the French uh, NASA Pendant uh, NES. And uh, we even won a prize uh, in the first year. So th this was very exciting. And uh, since then, the team grew and uh, more projects came the way uh, until uh, to a point where this got a, a business opportunity for me personally. I, I still support the team, but uh, I'm kind of retired now in the, in the student team, of course, uh, and um, was able to found a, a small business on what I what I learned there and where I started there. Okay, great. Well, it's it's uh, very interesting to hear that you actually uh, well moved out of engineering and did a philosophy degree or started a philosophy degree. That's that's uh, that's very interesting. Um, so we'll talk about the student project uh, more in just a little while, 
But um, before that, I can see that you have a very broad perspective in um, space engineering. So on your website, you give examples of uh, systems engineering and spacecraft engineering and also rocket nozzle engineering. Um, and before we delve deeper into some of these projects, um, I would like to provide our audience with a little bit of an overview of the many facets of space engineering. So, um, you know, we've all heard that rocket science, you know, is, is so difficult. It's one of the hardest um, fields in engineering. Could you um, explain why this is the case? What makes uh, space and rocket engineering, maybe in particular, so challenging? I think I can break this down to a, to a, a very simple example from the student team again. Because uh, when we were working on the, on the first rockets in the student team, we were basically working for a year to have uh, five minutes of action. And in the year before, you cannot really test all the aspects of those five minutes of action. So you have a, a lot of, it's not guesses, but calculation, uh, research in literature and all that stuff. Uh, where you have to put things together that you cannot try before. Huh? Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the, the, I think that's the main thing about uh, rocket science and space that makes it pretty hard that you cannot uh, just try again and try again. Of course, uh, this is getting better. Yeah? It, it was a lot worse back then when uh, launches were only able uh, to be financed by, by governmental agencies. And in the, in the broader scope, this is getting easier since uh, launches are getting cheaper and you can uh, take more risk without risking the huge upfront costs. Yeah, so going a bit, little bit, uh, expanding that a little bit. So you said, so it's very interesting to hear. So yeah, you have all these high energy components and you can't really test them before you, and then you got to bring them together. And I saw on your website, and I encourage our listeners to maybe check this out after the episode, and I'll, I'll put a link to uh, your website on, in the show notes. You have a schematic on your website of a propulsion system with like lots of tanks and valves, pumps, combustors. And um, so if you're saying that it's very, very hard a lot of the time to not test these things beforehand, how do you then actually go about, you know, integrating this complex system? How do you make sure that all these little components that they function together? Uh, the propulsion schematic is a, a special example. Um, it also shows a bit uh, of what the kink is of what I do, basically. Uh, all those components are existing components. Uh, they are already there from existing uh, satellite hardware, basically. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the task for this propulsion system was rather to think about, okay, we have uh, a problem at hand, we have a set of requirements, and within this set, set of requirements, we have to find a solution, a step where, where we don't reinvent the wheel, the wheel constantly. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So basically, those are all uh, components from uh, existing satellite suppliers. And the, the question was back then, that I sh should uh, make a first suggestion for a propulsion system for a lunar landing platform. And so I started out uh, reading liter literature. One of the big uh, advantages of uh, the large governmental pro programs is that they have a lot of documentation 
available. For example, the NASA and TRS papers, uh, most of it uh, is freely available in the internet. And also the German Aerospace uh, Agency and others put, publish a lot of papers. And uh, also you can go to those suppliers and ask them for um, product descriptions. And basically, so I try to uh, put together a portfolio that uh, could make the requirements. All right. So, okay. So you, you just mentioned something very interesting. So you, you're basically saying that, I mean, you know, we see all these new startup rocket companies. So of course we've all heard of, you know, SpaceX, um, but there's also smaller companies um, like Rocket Lab in New Zealand. And now we have Orbex starting, starting up in Europe. And I always wondered, okay, do they, have to do all the fundamental research or do they have you know a lot of knowledge already and you're basically saying that there is a, a lot of the knowledge to make these systems work is already freely available in the literature is that correct a lot of this knowledge is already freely available this was this new companies have to do is to find a new way uh to uh to handle those things the the way uh, rocket propulsion for example was handled up until now was in huge programs where you uh, did a lot of optimizations with uh, huge funding and what they have to accomplish is basically to make it a lot lot cheaper right okay which is which is not a simple task yeah of course not no 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 um okay so so moving on to the hound project which um which is the project that you alluded to previously. So can you explain what the Hound project is and how it is run? Uh, the Hound project is a, a project of the Vienna University uh, space team. And basically when I was uh, really active at the team, uh, this is when we started that project. I, I helped to uh, put together uh, the, the plan, basically. Uh, the idea was to use commercially available uh, experimental rocket motors uh, and uh, make a, a very lightweight design on the on the airframe and avionics so that we get uh, most out of it. Yeah? The goal was at first to go for 42 kilometers. Uh, this was um, the idea of a colleague who said who wanted to name the the program after marathon because he's. Uh, very in front of running. All right. And uh, later on, we discovered that uh, with our means of uh, working with composites and uh, 3D uh, metal laser sintering, uh, we could uh, go in even much further. And uh, this was where we found out that with two um, comparatively small commercial motors, we could go uh, to 100 kilo kilometers uh, above Earth and maybe above, so above the common line. Mm -hmm. This was uh, the goal. Uh, and in the last three years, uh, my colleagues uh, really invested a lot in this project. Uh, they did uh, a lot of testing here in Europe, but with the downside, of course, that here in Europe, the population density is pretty high. Uh, there is almost nowhere where you can go to launch a rocket above three kilometers. Uh, mm -hmm. And three kilometers compared to 100 is, uh, you see that you can test a lot, a lot of the real problems that you will face later on. 
because of course if you have such a small vehicle uh, and such so short burning motors you get a lot of velocity uh, you're going basically above Mach 5 where you will have excessive heating on the fins and on the tip and uh, of course you cannot really t test that huh? but what we could test in, in Europe over here which tested the same rocket but with a lot smaller motors was uh, all of the sorts of things like uh, you have to do staging and you have to have a recovery system basically an experimental rocket uh, has a motor is ignited on the ground uh, goes up and on the apogee uh, electronics detect an apogee and uh, you check the parachute uh, a smaller shoot first mostly on higher flights so that winds don't drag you too far off the field and then later on before landing it deploys a larger chute to have to slow down uh, not to get damaged upon landing uh, this sounds pretty simple but uh, of course there are the little details that uh, make it hard uh, the space team developed its own electronics uh, this is kind of an evolutionary process over years uh, where they added uh, a lot of sensors and of course programs to uh, measure different uh, values during flight and for such a for a two-stage flight there is a the speciality that you have a motor in the lower stage uh, which is fairly unproblematic because you ignite it on the ground you can make this by measures of uh, of, of wire or even uh, by uh, by a wireless device uh, but for the upper stage motor you, ha you have to ignite it on the right time and uh, somewhere mid-air while traveling pretty pretty fast so uh, this is uh, yeah an interesting problem well the, the one the yeah. one interesting thing is that um so you, you have the two stages and I presume, so I, I first of all, I didn't know it was two stages. I thought it was just a single stage. So in terms of the second, the, the first stage, once the rocket basically splits in two, do you then also recover the, the first stage, the lower half of the rocket with a, with a, with a parachute? Uh, both, both stages of the rockets uh, do have a separate recovery system. Basically it's uh, identical electronics that detect when the rocket is on, a, on its parabolic apogee and then uh, they uh, separate the, the nose cap and uh, have it gliding down. Uh, this is also true for the first stage. The first stage is still uh, aerodynamically stable when, they, when it separates from the second stage. You have to imagine that uh, for the Hound project, we had an upper stage motor which has a, a diameter of 75 millimeters it's about one and a half meters long. And uh, the lower stage has a diameter of 98 millimeters. So in, 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 in an, an aerodynamical hindsight, you want to separate the, 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 the upper stage as soon as possible after the, the motor of the, the lower stage burned out, since the upper stage has a lot uh, less drag, mm -hmm. uh, since drag is very dependent on the, on the uh, the projected surface from from above yeah. and uh, after that the lower stage is still continuing its own 
parabolic path, uh, but of course uh, with a lot lower aperture. And then after separation, the upper stage uh, will glide uh, for several seconds. The reason for this uh, delay of igniting the upper stage motor is that uh, you want to get the upper stage out of the dense atmosphere before you light the motor, because then you have, of course, a, a lot less drag and you get uh, not that much velocity within denser uh, air. So uh, you can reduce the, the heat flux that's coming in through the tip and, and the fins. Right. Uh, the tricky thing about the upper stage is that uh, the, the motors we use, which is uh, uh, commercial motors uh, are based on ammonium perchlorate, uh, oxidizer and uh, some binders based on epoxy and uh, rubber bases. Uh, this, this stuff where the oxidizer is already mixed with the fuel, basically, is pretty hard to ignite. It's 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 called uh, it, it's explosives, but it's not exploding in that sense, and it's very hard to ignite. So the the dangerous part is that you need. Uh, an igniter, which is a lot more volatile, that uh, produces a lot of heat to ignite the large grains in the propellant grains in the motor, basically. And the, the, the thing with the upper stage is that you have to uh, mount the igniter within the motor uh, before you launch. Uh? Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a situation where you want to be very careful, but because once you ignited such a uh, solid propellant motor, you can't stop it by no means. Yeah? There, is, uh, there is no uh, way to uh, extinguish a fire that's coming from a compound that's already having the oxidizer and the fuel within it. So uh, the, the thing is that you have to be very careful about how to do your upper stage ignition because uh, those igniters are also sensitive to electrostatic discharge. So with, with uh, some stupid wiring, you could easily get them to ignite. And then you'd have uh, a real problem if the rocket is basically uh, maybe on, just lying on the ground. Uh, you get a missile instead of a rocket, which is a thing you, you really don't want to have. Yeah. And these, so these motors, you said they are, um, I presume you do not, build um build these motors so it's i guess it's a single single engine single nozzle solid rocket motor that you uh you can you can buy commercially under if you have i guess there must be certain security uh, measures in place so that not everybody just buys these these mo motors yes i mean the the situation is completely different over there in the us and over here in europe uh, here in austria the the space team uh organized uh a special course, uh, a special uh, training course uh, with uh, explosives uh, professional, and this is the first time there is that there is uh, basically we organized a, a special license for this uh, kind of uh, motors, so that we can at least uh, store and handle and buy them here in Austria. Shipping to Austria is a completely different thing, which is of course very hard. But in this case, uh, we uh, did not bring the, our motors with us because we just ordered them uh, to the spot there in the US 
which is not the problem over there to handle those motors. Okay, so then if you are launching in the US, basically, then you basically you just get the motor shipped there directly and you build the structure and the avionics in Austria and then basically ship it over and then assemble everything there. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of so when you say that so the students are working on the structure and the avionics and I guess also the the electronics probably. So yeah. how is how is this program structured? Is this kind of they they're working on their bachelor degree or their master's degree and this is project work, um, or are, are they in working together with companies? How does the kind of design manufacturing work? How is this structured? In Vienna, the, the space team is uh, independent. It's an independent student team from the from the university. There, of course, there is the poss possibility to do your some of your uh, a master's degree within making a project with the space team, but it's not uh, mandatory. Uh, what uh, the space team easily gets from companies is uh, materials, know-how and uh, the possibility uh, to use machines. So there is a lot of incentive from uh, technology companies who even uh, have us come by to their workshop and, uh, for example, make composite parts there. Or there are companies that where we can send the 3D laser synthesizers, uh, they print it, uh, they discuss the process with, with us. Uh, it's also interesting for them. And uh, those companies, of course, have uh, a big interest in uh, getting to know uh, young engineers who are involved in such a project because who, because you show that you can work independently, that you can uh, manage your own stuff. And this is what the companies are interested. And that's why we can even come to their places, uh, work with uh, fancy machines that you can't come by as a students, work uh, with materials that are much too expensive to come by even within a small university project. Right. Okay, so um, I saw that you've just come back from the Black Rock Desert where you launched your experimental rocket. And I'm curious to know, so what is it specifically that you tested there? Is it that you just wanted to go past the Kármán line to go beyond 100 kilometers? Um, or was there another goal? And then what I'm also interested in is that so once you've done this experimental rocket test, what is uh, what is you know what what happens with the next year afterwards? Do you try to make the rocket lighter? Do you use data that you gathered to perhaps change the design of the rocket? What what happens you know year to year? How does the project evolve? Uh, we tested a lot of things uh, simultaneously there at BlackRock. We never had the rocket flying that high. So we had to make sure uh, to get telemetry coverage uh, over uh, a lot of distance. Because when the rocket comes down and you have a bit of wind, uh, you have no chance to find it uh, later on again. We had several systems. We had uh, communication systems that uh, with uh, ground antennas that were spaced uh, about 20 kilometers apart in three directions to have uh, area coverage. Uh, we had uh, special GPS trackers that would uh, send us their data via the via RPS channels, and we had even had a, a commercial uh, satellite uh, locator on board that would be activated after landing. And uh, with the airframe, we had uh, 
completely new composites, which are uh, glass fiber composites in this case, because of uh, we want to have, get the telemetry through through the airframe. Uh, but with a cyanidic ester matrix that would hold, hold uh, really high temperatures. And what was also new and which was my part of the project uh, was uh, that we had uh, 3D laser sintered uh, aluminum fin cans, which are inside, uh, have an inside structure, isogrid structure, which makes them hollow and very light. Mm-hmm. So for uh, stability reasons, you want to have a very light bottom at, at the rocket. And then it's uh, very beneficial if you have a structure there that can uh, for once uh, bear some heat for second distribute the heat and third uh, be uh, pretty pretty strong and stiff. Not all did go according to plan in uh, BlackRock. Uh, we had some security measures, uh, especially about uh, igniting the upper stage motor. This was, on one hand, a really good thing. Uh, the, 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 the guys from the Tripoli Rocket Association who organized uh, that event at BlackRock Desert, where those rockets can be launched, were very impressed uh, of uh, the measures we took. And uh, I'd have to say two other teams really, really failed at that point. Uh, which was spectacular, but you you really don't want to have that. So basically, we had this uh, space team arm device for our upper stage motor, and in the end, uh, our rocket launched perfectly straight. Uh, a lot of the things worked, but we did not ignite our upper stage motor, uh, which is a sad thing. But uh, we had a malfunction exactly at that device, but. You have to say uh, those things are uh, pretty complicated. You're checking a lot of values. You're checking the deviation uh, from the vertical angle. When you go up, you don't want to ignite your rocket when it's going sideways. You don't want to ignite your rocket, your upper stage rocket when it's not even launched and so on and so on. And uh, yeah, one of those things. Right. One final question on the structure. So you said it's a glass fiber um, composite material. And earlier in the conversation, you said that if you were to go to, you know, 100 kilometers height, then you would reach velocities of of Mach 5. Now, I can I can kind of uh, I presume that under those velocities that the skin temperature of your rocket gets quite high. So can the, the the glass fiber composite take those temperatures or is there additional cooling to cool the the rocket structure no the the rocket structure itself is not getting that hot the, the parts that get, that get really hot are is basically the tip of the rocket and the fins okay and those are made of aluminium in this case okay perfect uh, okay well on the on the topic of temperature one of the other things that you've been working on are metal matrix composites and um, so perhaps to, to begin what are metal matrix composites and what are you looking to use them for uh, metal matrix composites was uh, an idea i had a bit more than a year ago uh, basically it's it was a discussion about uh, ablative rocket nozzles uh, you have different possibilities how you can deal with the heat within a rocket motor and one, uh, some some do active cooling, some uh, 
do uh, some film cooling with excessive propellant and some other just uh, make the rocket nozzle out of a material that is burning off very slowly, but uh, in a controlled manner. And basically that's called ablative nozzles. And uh, those are mostly made of carbon fibers with uh, a, a matrix resin that is, that is charring before it's melting, um, mostly phenolic-based uh, resin. And so I had the idea what would happen if we can introduce a, a metal between the fibers instead of uh, a resin that's slowly charring. And so I made uh, first uh, experiments with that and found out that this worked uh, pretty, pretty well. Uh, then uh, I, I had uh, two students working for me and together we went to the university again and uh, asked at the material sciences department if they can have a closer look to the samples that we produced. And with uh, those images, we could see that we can actually produce a matrix, uh, a pretty consistent matrix between those fibers. So no and voids, basically. Exactly, no voids and a metallic matrix. The thing is that carbon fibers uh, retain their, their strengths and stiffness properties to even above 2000 degrees centigrade. Uh, the only problem is that you have to uh, prevent them from oxidizing. So if you have a layer of a metal that is uh, not melting lightly, uh, preventing those uh, carbon fibers from getting in contact with oxidizing gases from the exhaust, then you'd have a pretty interesting material for some for a rocket nozzle, uh, for a rocket motor nozzle for example. And from there, we started out uh, researching the material with a small grant and uh, also building our first nozzles, basically uh, refining the process, how to do the infiltration uh, in this case. And uh, from there, we uh, fired our first gas-gas-fired uh, uh, a small thruster nozzle, basically. Uh, it's gas-gas-fired because uh, of it's a lot easier to come by uh, gases and uh, also injector design and ignition and all that things uh, stuff is a lot easier. Um, I just, just like a really basic question. So I, you know, I, I myself work in uh, polymer matrix um, composites, and in that case, it's it's very easy to think, okay. How are you going to get the you know the plastic and the fibers together? Because you can you can have a liquid form of um, the of the resin. How how does it work in 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 the metal case? So you have a metal matrix between these fibers holding everything together, and do you just melt the met metal down and then insert the fibers, or or is it much more complicated than that? Uh, it's it's a bit different. Uh... There is a lot of uh, metal matrix composites. Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, railway uh, trains uh, use it, uh, use metal matrix, chopper metal matrix composites as uh, conductive materials with the, the context of the, contacting the, the electric rail. Uh, and those are made uh, 
with molten metal. But molten metal uh, has its problems because it's very hot and uh, on the on the surface of the you degrade the surface of the fibers very heavily. There are metal matrix composites with aluminium and with chopper, but uh, no hot with with no uh, higher melting temperature metals. Uh, in our case, uh, the metal is introduced with via a chemical process. Uh, this is a very slow process, but it can be it can be unattended, and uh, due to a, a special arrangement, uh, we basically have the metal uh, matrix growing from within uh, the fibers. Oh wow! Yeah. So the thing is that we can uh, with that we can introduce. Uh, metals that are, have a lot higher melting temperatures, um, uh, all metals that can do some form of electrochemic uh, deposition. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, uh, the simplest form is again, of course, chopper, uh, nickel, which has a quite interesting melting temperature then, uh, chrome, chromium, and uh, even uh, some of the refractory metals. Uh, this is, of course, uh, the interesting part, but uh, this is also the part where uh, the research project uh, is getting a, a lot bigger and uh, a lot slower, because uh, a lot of the usability of such a compound is dependent on what happens uh, what exactly happens on the on the on the surface contact between the fiber and the metal? And basically, this is where we are uh, working right now to uh, get that uh, uh, to yeah uh, to get a better understanding of, of what happens there and of uh, in in what direction we can go from here. Right. Yeah. I can I can imagine that if you are trying to stop the carbon fibers from oxidizing, then the kind of the chemical bond between the metal and the fiber is obviously kind of the the crucial thing to get right if you want to prevent the oxidation or not. No, it's not not so much about the oxidation. The oxidation is even prevented with a, with a thin layer. Uh, one thing is uh, that a lot of uh, the, the toughness of a composite part is dependent on uh, on how, how strong uh, the bond between the matrix and the fiber is. Mm -hmm. uh, and even uh, usually with uh, polymeric composites, this is not only uh, a mechanical bond due to grooves and all that stuff, it's also a chemical bond. And you can also do that with some metals. But uh, that has then again some downside of diffusing metals into carbon and the opposite. and that's where the, the, the problem gets complicated. And then, uh, of course, you have uh, some issues with different uh, uh, thermal expansion coefficients. So uh, basically, if you make it a lot hot, hotter than uh, in the state where you manufactured it, then uh, the carbon fiber doesn't extend at all. Uh, most metals do extend in some form. And there are some tricks to uh, mitigate that problem, basically. Right. Yeah, with, with polymer composites, yeah, it's precisely the same, that the carbon fiber doesn't really want to react 
to to temperature in terms of expanding or contracting but the the polymer of course does so you you get these mi mismatches where you can sometimes create you know kind of a bimaterial effect where things will start to bend and warp as they're cooling down or as they're being heated up so you know with with these challenges in mind it sounds like there's still a lot of research to be done so let's say you had the the perfect material you've got it all worked out and it it works for um, a gas gas um, engine so why why do this what are the advantages of using um, a metal matrix uh, composite over the techniques you mentioned earlier about you know gas cooling and, and these other techniques uh, you could also use it in a liquid engine the uh, the, the the idea is that if you have such a metal matrix composites with uh, melting with a temperature where the matrix is not melting below, uh, let's say, 1,500 degrees centigrade, and is even uh, can be uh, somewhat oxidation resistant, then you don't have don't need any cooling at all. Basically, uh, at satellite thrusters, we already do this today. We just mill them mill them out of chunks of uh, platinum rhodium uh, alloy. And the thruster is made of a material that just uh, is okay with the temperature, with the steady state temperature that uh, is going on when the thruster is fired. Uh, the problem with uh, platinum rhodium is that it's very expensive. And if you can make that uh, out of metal matrix composite, that's a lot cheaper, then uh, you have a, 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 a very interesting case. All right. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so now it becomes very clear then because it, it's, it's kind of like um, when we think of, you know, jet engine technology, it's very similar that people did things like you had crystals in the metal and you, you get rid of the crystals. You just have one big single crystal. Then you introduce cooling and all these other things. But in this particular case, you're basically saying we have really, really hot temperatures and we're not going to do any fancy tricks. We're just going to come up with an amazing material that can take the really high temperatures. Yeah, it's this, uh, they're basically doing the same with jet engines. Uh, the, a lot of research is focused on ceramics mm -hmm. today, yeah? but ceramics do have uh, uh, some problems with longevity, and that's uh, uh, especially with uh, rocket nozzles. Ceramics uh, do have problems with cycling, mm -hmm. and. So uh, a material with uh, a met metallic compound that would uh, uh, be okay with cycling uh, would be very beneficial. Uh, the two students that worked for me uh, last year, they started a new project with the Theobin space team uh, and they are taking part at the base 11 challenge. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you have heard about it. It's uh, a challenge that's, that's issued by Spaceport America. And uh, it's for a student uh, project uh, reaching an altitude above 100 kilometers with a liquid en engine, with a bipropellant liquid engine. And uh, of course, uh, Europeans cannot easily participate there, but they uh, joined up with a space team from Toronto, with a student team from, from Toronto. And they want to use the metal matrix composites uh, for uh, the rocket nozzle material in this case. 
All right, very cool. So you, you're actually hoping that, well, I, I guess so there is an incentive to basically continue on with the research as, as quickly as possible so that these students can uh, use the nozzle on the rocket. Uh, of course, there is. Uh, the, the thing is, uh, the using it on, on this rocket is a single-use part, and this is something we can accomplish a lot earlier than making parts that can be cycled a lot of times. Well, Manuel, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about Metal Matrix Composites and the Hound Project. Um, and thank you very much for taking the time today to um, to talk to me. I'll put links to your um, to your to your uh, Twitter account and your website. Um, and thank you very much for having the conversation. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about Manuel's work on Metal Matrix Composites or the Hound Project, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family. Or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon, where patrons receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and talk to you next time.